By the age of 35, William S. Burroughs still hadn't published anything. He was nothing but a heroin junkie at this time, living off of a small allowance from his parents. But by 1983, at the age of 70, he would be sitting next to George Kennan as he was inducted into the Academy and Institute of Arts and Letters. How is this even possible? That's going to be one of the questions I'm going to try to answer in this podcast. Everything I'm about to teach you is drawn from a 1988 Burroughs biography called Literary Outlaw, The Life and Times of William S. Burroughs. The author is Ted Morgan, and for what it's worth, I really enjoyed the book. So Burroughs was one of the most independent creative spirits of the 20th century, I would argue, and one of the most influential as well. Personally, I don't think he was the greatest writer. I'm not in love with his fiction myself. Although I do like his interviews and essays and some of his ideas about the world. I also don't think he's the greatest thinker of the 20th century. I just think that he's one of the wildest. That's the real reason why I'm so interested in this personality. And it's why I think you should be as well. Because this guy figured out how to escape control structures better than anyone else throughout his entire life. It's hard for me to think of anyone in the 20th century who was so successful at remaining socially unconditioned. You can like him or hate him, and you can definitely make some very valid critiques about his work and even about his ethical character as a person. But what you cannot dispute is that he always stayed extremely free and original. This was the the true OG free spirit way before the hippies, and in fact, a major influence and condition for the possibility of the transformations in the 60s and the 70s was this one strange highly independent man who, whatever else you want to say about him, managed to live a life of absolute freedom and to pursue an incredibly idiosyncratic, unique vision of the world that he never really let anyone get in the way of. And even though he had a lot of difficulties and there are a lot of personality traits and situations that he faces that actually make it quite unlikely for him to become a very successful writer, he nonetheless pulls it off. And this is what I'm going to try to figure out. This is what I want to try to understand and try to extract some lessons from. One thing it's important to start off with is to recognize how influential he was. Through the 70s and 80s, you would be stunned to learn how many people, really famous musicians, for instance, loved Burroughs and said as much. Frank Zappa, Lou Reed, The Talking Heads, Patti Smith, Iggy Pop, David Bowie, and the Rolling Stones. And of course, more recently, you have Nick Land and the CCRU, who cite Burroughs in many different ways. So the question is, how did this Harvard-educated heroin junkie catch his big breaks as a writer when he didn't even write his first novel until he was 37? I want to understand the social psychological correlates of his intellectual freedom in this most extreme case study of a personality. These are the kinds of questions that I'm going to try to tackle in what follows. But before I do that, there's one other thing that I really want to sketch here, which really just says a lot about Burroughs' personality. One of the most remarkable things about him is that throughout his life, despite being one of the strangest and most unique personalities of the century, he never stopped carrying himself like a straight-laced Midwestern gentleman. This is so fascinating that this guy graduated from Harvard and wore a vested three-piece suit with a snap rim hat throughout his life, with a tie and everything. The guy looked like a Midwestern genteel businessman or something. Meanwhile, he's building orgone accumulators in his house and fleeing from one country to the next on 
some kind of legal charge and using lie detector tests on himself and, of course, doing heroin. He was essentially a conservative anarchist. And this is something that I think most people don't know about Burroughs that is perhaps the single most striking and interesting and surprising fact about him and his life that people don't know. He was not only conservative in his mannerisms and his dress and his basic everyday life and attitude, but he was also straight up politically conservative. I don't think anyone knows this. Whenever you talk to about him or whenever he comes up in conversation, he's always assumed to be of the mostly left-wing counterculture, but he wasn't. We'll go through some examples, but he was pretty much explicit. He hated socialism. He was a misogynist. He did not like women. He was homosexual, but he did not like his homosexuality and was against it. He believed that abortion was murder, and he was generally against war and against state power, but he did not like the hippies. Timothy Leary tried to work with him, and Burroughs gave it a shot, but pretty quickly left that scene. In fact, Burroughs sat out the entire 1960s American counterculture by living in Europe the entire time. He was hugely influential in it, but had nothing to do with it. So this conservative anarchistic spirit is just so fascinating, and we're going to see how this plays out in the rest of this podcast. What's up, everybody? I'm Justin Murphy. This is the Other Life Podcast. I'm super excited to drop today's episode because it's a totally new format. I've been thinking about this and planning this for a long time. I'm going to try doing these long, deep dives into the lives of the most interesting and impressive and wildest writers to try to learn as many lessons as possible from the greatest writers and people, especially who have figured out how to get really free from institutions and from all of the various conflicting pressures that historically are always trying to suck the life out of writers and domesticate them and pacify them. This is the first one. I'm experimenting. I'd love to hear from you. Let me know what you think. Maybe you think it's lame. Maybe it's dumb. Maybe it's too long. I don't know. But I'm pumped on it and I want to see if this is a, a powerful and valuable format that my audience likes as much as I liked doing it. So yeah, you can reply to an email from me, send me an email, reply to one of the other life newsletters, drop a message in the community, DM me on Twitter, whatever. I want to hear from you. Let me know if you like this. Thanks, everyone. Peace. William Seward Burroughs II was born in St. Louis. This was in 1914. Genetically, he combined two American archetypes, which you've probably heard of before or encountered in American history. The, that's how Ted Morgan describes his heritage. Basically, on his father's side was what we might call the Yankee inventor. His paternal grandfather got wealthy by inventing the first commercially successful adding machine. Basically, it was an early kind of computer. And he sold this product to banks and made a lot of money doing that. That pretty much put Bur the Burroughs family into the upper crust of St. Louis society. But sadly, the Burroughs family would not really keep very much of that wealth. Although they would remain comfortable and well-to-do, they lost a lot of equity in the adding machine over time. It's actually a pretty crazy story, which I think you'll find interesting. So William's grandfather, this is Burroughs' grandfather, lived through one of the most exciting ages for mechanical inventors. It was basically like steampunk. The, the typewriter was invented in 1868, the telephone in 1876, the cash register in 1879, the fountain pen in 1884, and the Kodak camera in 1888. So really exciting times if you're an inventor of strange mechanical contraptions. No one at that time yet had figured out how to mechanize and automate the task of adding long lists of numbers on paper. 
which obviously consumed a lot of man hours for companies like banks. So at this time, you could really strike it rich by conceiving of some harebrained invention, but it was still incredibly hard. It was a lot of risk required and it absurd self-confidence. And that's why that era also generated a ton of failed contraptions and failed companies, which in retrospect seem absurd and ridiculous, almost like scams. And in fact, there, there were a lot of scammers as well because all this stuff was still new and people couldn't tell the difference between a, a new device that would change the world and one that was just a fancy blueprint that would never make any sense in physical practice. So in 1886, William's grandfather, Edmund Burroughs, called his machine the Arithmometer and he incorporated it as the American Arithmometer Company. Later, it would just be called the Burroughs Corporation. And at that time, he had no patent and he didn't even have a working prototype. He just had the confidence that he could figure this out. And then after two years, he still didn't have a working machine. He had spent a ton of investors' cash and he was really desperate. You might be wondering why I'm going into such detail about this character, but it's because I think we're going to see a kind of literary version of this in, in Burroughs later. Anyway, Burroughs' grandfather thought that he was done for. He thought that he was running out of money and he, right before he hits the last dollar in his bank, he basically figures it out finally. And his working machines go out in 1891. That was five years after he started. So just think you're spending five years working on this idea that you have in your head that no one's ever heard of. No one has given you any, there's no way to know from social opinion or from external supports that you're right. You're just, you have your idea and you have to put all of this time and energy into it if you really believe in it. Okay. This is, we can start to see how this might factor into a radical literary career and these genes. And basically by the year 1920, uh, the Burroughs company had assets of 430 million, but most of the profit went to this other guy, this guy named Joe Boyer. He was basically like the CEO. And to finance his living, Edmund Burroughs' grandfather sold a lot of stock. So Basically, the point here is just that he could have started, Ed, Edmund Burroughs' grandfather could have started a multi-generational dynasty akin to something like General Electric or DuPont. That's the type of opportunity that was here, but he just wasn't really that type of person. And this is something we're also going to see with William Burroughs, I think. William was the type who probably could have been a dominant writer in the American establishment, but he just wasn't that type of person. He was a little too weird, too impulsive. And, and frankly, underachieving for, for most of his life. To understand really how Burroughs would make it as one of the most wild writers in the American 20th century, I think you, you have to really understand this Yankee inventor mindset that he inherited, but which he would, he would twist to his own purposes. Now, his grandfather on his mother's side, she was a kind of fire and brimstone Methodist preacher who traveled the Georgia backwoods, spreading the good word, the word of Christ. And his name was James Weidman Lee. That's the grandfather on the mother's side. And one of his children, so this would be one of William's uncles, would use these Southern preacher traits to build a highly successful career in corporate public relations, which was a very new field at the time. And you've probably heard of Edward Bernays, often called the father of modern propaganda. He was also the nephew of Freud. William Burroughs' uncle, was named Ivy Lee, and he was Bernays. He was this Bernays-like character, more or less in the, roughly around the same time period. And Ivy Lee pretty much invented public relations in the same way that Bernays invented modern propaganda. He was basically a expert in communications hired by the robber barons, essentially. At this time, there's these massive fortunes being built, and these 
newly rich people, which we now call the robber barons, there's a lot of hatred towards them and resentment and envy and that kind of thing. And so they needed people to help steer their image. All right. If the Pennsylvania Railroad, for instance, had some kind of bad crash, Ivy Lee, this is William Burroughs' uncle, would come to the rescue and he would basically make the Pennsylvania Railroad look good and the rich guys look good, that kind of thing, defend their image. And he worked closely with the Rockefellers, for instance, all the biggest players. Okay. So the reason that this is very interesting to me and the reason I go over this is that I think this too sheds some light on Burroughs' unique trajectory because he was very far from a Christian preacher. Obviously, he was not a Christian at all and, and was a pretty, he had a kind of relatively bleak, nihilistic, secular attitude. And he believed in otherworldly forces, but it was ambiguous and certainly did not live a Christian lifestyle by any means. So that's not what I'm getting at. But he did find it natural to travel and to explore and to seek the truth on his own terms. And this is very much kind of the lifestyle of the itinerant Christian preacher, you know, sells all of his belongings and roams the Georgia backwoods to preach, whether it's like his grandfather on his mother's side or his uncle who is doing these public relations campaigns. There is an element of kind of wild itinerant communication and passionate expression that I think is that's part of what's going on here. Okay. He didn't really care how it looked, Burroughs, and he didn't care if it was seen as normal. He didn't care if he was normal. This is, I think, the inheritance that he got from his mother's side. And so the other crucial thing about his childhood is that this is where things get a little dark, is that he was abused as a child. And I won't go into the, the details too much. I don't think we really know the details too well. But it seems that there was an incident when he was about four years old that introduced evil into his life. This is what Ted Morgan says. And the exact details are unknown, but basically his nanny or babysitter, her name was Mary. Apparently, she like brought Burroughs over to her boyfriend and they were all hanging out and Apparently, some misdeeds happened, and the idea is that we believe he was sexually abused, and he basically always felt violated after this. He always, this was the beginning, according to Ted Morgan, this is how Morgan reads it, this is the beginning of Burroughs' sense that there's something gross and improper about him and, and being done to him. Burroughs would, for the enti his entire life, have this theory of forces, of strange forces acting on him, and... And he believed in hexes and things like that. He would, at some point in his life, be actively putting hexes on institutions and, and individuals. It's not as some kind of publicity stunt. This is like private. Like he really did believe this and he did this as his own kind of personal practice at some point. So he believed in very strange forces and mechanisms in the world. This is something that, you know, is pervasive in his writing. And there was also this other episode when he was young where he went to summer camp at Los, Al Los Alamos, which is actually a strange coincidence because this was before the Manhattan Project. This is before that area gets its reputation as the site of mysterious, destructive engineering. Before that, he went to summer camp there and he had another unfortunate experience with his headmaster, with the headmaster there. I don't, I won't go into it, but basically the guy was a creep and made him strip and it's not really clear what happened. But anyway, he had these experiences in childhood that, that really initiated the sense of just not fitting into the world. And this is what Morgan says. I'm a little, I tend to be a little bit more skeptical about theories of trauma and that kind of thing. I don't actually think we have a ton of evidence for that type of, of model, even though it's very popular. Anyway, take it for what it's worth. These were experiences that would probably color his life in some regard. By the way, a quick aside, it is insane how casual people used to be about the abuse of children. If you read 
pretty much any book about people from like the 50s or earlier. The fact is, it's very obvious, just child abuse was not even taken that seriously. It would happen and people were just, oh, okay, I guess we should try to avoid that. It was like treated so lightly. Like when this issue with his babysitter came to light, the parents were just, all right, I guess we should get a new nanny. And they just moved on with life. Nowadays, we take this stuff so seriously and we're so worried about it. And if it happens, it's a, a complete catastrophe. But back then it seemed, I don't know, that's a separate story. This is a separate research agenda, but the way people used to treat this so different, so weird. If you think of something like Shirley Temple, the little girl, like star back in the day, she was basically like a sex icon. She was like a little girl and she was literally in the commercials as a sex icon. Very strange. Anyway, nobody really talks about that stuff, but it's one of the things you can't help but see when you read biographies of people that, you know, from before the fifties or sixties. Anyway, very strange. But another funny story while we're on this is that Ivy Lee Burroughs uncle on his mother's side actually had an epic downfall. It's pretty crazy. You know what it would have caused it? Hitler. So the Nazi brand in America didn't really have the best image, let's just say. So the Nazis in America like went looking for corporate public relations help, believe it or not. And basically the American backers of the Third Reich solicited Burroughs' uncle. And Burroughs' uncle just treated them like another client, basically. <laughs> he didn't really think that much of it. He was just like, sure, if I can make the Rockefellers look good for money, then I'll make anyone look good for money. Why not? And so he only realized too late that working for the Third Reich was not the same. And his reputation was basically totally ruined and unsalvageable. But that, I think, maybe is another lesson for Burroughs and something else that would color his life is that I think from a very early age, he saw in these ways that language is, is a kind of very mystified, deceptive, and dangerous thing. It's, it's pliability and its ability to cause various ripples in the physical world and the social world is, is much more uncanny and, and wild and dangerous than people realize as evidenced by or taught to him by examples such as the, the crazy ups and downs of his uncle's life in, as a manipulator of language. In fact, one of the most famous ideas from Burroughs, which is often quoted as something like, quote unquote, like language is a virus from outer space. This is an idea that he had and the CCRU and Nick Land take this very seriously. And in fact, that's one of one of the biggest tropes, perhaps in the kind of Landian CCRU philosophy. And I suspect that Burroughs really started to see this from a very young age because of these family influences. Because think about it, one side of his family lost its inheritance, basically just because of how names were shuffled around on pieces of paper. And then the other side of his family showed him how words and images are basically bought and sold at the highest levels of social reality. So this is the kind of stuff that he's swimming in and breathing in as, as a child. In fact, you an example of this later in his life. So obviously he would become a heroin junkie. He would get in trouble for basically breaking the law in the ways that heroin junkies often do. Anyway, at some point he would flee to Texas where he tried to set up a farm. And it's a crazy story. We'll talk about it in a minute. But it's in this context that he says something very interesting. Basically, his farm business fails. Not surprisingly, he was terrible at anything practical. But he says something very fascinating at the end of all of that. He's comparing his life and experience as a, her a heroin user and a kind of street scammer, a kind of street criminal, and his experience as a farmer. And here's what he says. Quote, in short, this is Burroughs writing to Allen Ginsberg, 
my ethical position now that I am a respectable farmer is probably shakier than when I was pushing junk. And why did he say that? It's because as a farmer, he violated the law every day, hiring illegal immigrants from Mexico. This is just how the economy of farming in Texas worked. It's what everyone did. But those violations of the law were silently condoned by the corrupt government. This was a brutal and exploitative underground economy, a lot of violence and brutality, and the government just allowed it, essentially. Whereas when he was just a petty street criminal, he was engaged in unethical behavior, but at least nobody had any, any illusions about it. There wasn't this extra layer of deceptive, hypocritical, institutional posturing to cover over for it. According to Ted Morgan, this contrast between living life as a petty criminal and his experience as a farmer in Texas really reinforced Burroughs' sense that conventional morality is a hoax, that the line between criminal and law-abiding citizen is actually more blurred than people realize. It was around this time that Burroughs decided to adopt a philosophy that he called factualism. He says, quote, all arguments, all nonsensical condemnations as to what people should do are irrelevant. Ultimately, there is only fact on all levels. And the more one argues, verbalizes, moralizes, the less he will see and feel of fact. Or as he put it to Kerouac, the only possible ethic is to do what one wants to do. Now, I maybe wouldn't go that far on that last line, but we'll scratch that. Now, this is very interesting. This is very reminiscent of Nick Land, who writes about the collapse of the fact-value distinction, how capitalism essentially erases the old philosophical question about the difference between facts and values. Burroughs is one locus classicus for this viewpoint that Nick Land and the CCRU will run with. This is also reminiscent of Deleuze. And of course, Deleuze and Guattari cite Burroughs a few times, explicitly and implicitly. But Deleuze is completely against the very idea of academic debate and disputation. He talks about this wonderfully, that you should never object to another thinker. There's no point. If something does not suit you, just go the other way. So here Deleuze is following in the footsteps of Burroughs, whether he knows that or not. I think he does know that. One of the most interesting things about Burroughs is that he was an extremely late bloomer as a writer. He hardly wrote anything at all until his 30s. He was writing little bits here and there throughout his life. He always wrote bits, but they were always trivial. He never really published anything, and I don't think any of it was uh, of any interest. He publishes his first book, his first novel, it's called Junkie, when he was 37 years old. And that's pretty interesting, given how successful he ultimately is. Burroughs' father, Mortimer Burroughs, was a pretty normal salesman. He was just a very ordinary Midwestern guy. His mother was also a normal very normal society woman. But again, we're talking about the lowest tier of high society, essentially. So think very upper middle class. They did come from this pretty famous and moneyed background with the grandfather. But like I said, he didn't actually see that much of the wealth from the adding machine. And by the time it trickled down to his borough's parents, it really wasn't that much. So they were very upper middle class, but they would have been looked down upon by families like the, the Rockefellers or the DuPonts or the wealthier families in St. Louis. So they were in this awkward situation where they identified with the real upper crust and they aspired to it. And in some sense, they did belong to it. But at the same time, they were always considered beneath that real upper crust. 
And the biography talks about how the ratio was something like 80 to one. Like the Burroughs may have had a quarter million dollars in the bank, which made them wealthy, but they were never really accepted by the families that had, let's say, 20 million in the bank. That was the ratio, about 80 to one in terms of the, the real upper crust and the Burroughs. If Edmund Burroughs had held on to all the shares in the company, then Burroughs would have been worth about 20 million. So that gives you a sense of kind of what was lost in the less than shrewd negotiations that transpired through the course of how the business progressed. In other words, the family was very comfortable, but they also had a big chip on their shoulder. And William's brother was a very well-behaved and successful kind of typical waspy St. Louis Chad, essentially. He did everything right. Burroughs' biographer thinks that this was what allowed William to get away with just failure after failure in his young adult life. It was the perfect cookie-cutter success of his brother that made his parents feel like, okay, whatever, the prodigal son will just take care of him. But make no mistake about it, William Burroughs was pretty much a failure at everything he ever tried. Always getting into trouble, just in every stage, in every location, in every venture, pretty much. I won't even go over the details because they're boring and repetitive. It's just failure after failure. He's arrested multiple times, spent jail, spent time in jail many times, always getting bailed out by his parents. Okay. Anyway, the reason I bring up all of his early failures in life and the fact that he never got really down to serious writing until he was 37 is to point out that sometimes with some people, you need to get a lot of failure out of your system in a way. So if you're listening to this and you're 37 or thereabouts or whatever age you are, but maybe you've had a lot of failures in your life, you've just messed up a lot of things, you haven't been smart, you haven't been responsible, whatever. In some ways, sometimes you just have to go through all of that and you have to reach a kind of breaking point where you just feel like, I am so worthless, this can't go on anymore. And then you can turn to something like writing, even late in life, as a kind of redemption. And I think this is what we see with Burroughs. Sadly, Burroughs is about to have the biggest mistake of his entire life, which will haunt him forever in, let's say, the beginning of his middle age period. And that's really the bottom of the barrel for, for William Burroughs. And that is what leads to him finally getting serious about writing. I'm talking about, of course, the infamous incident where he accidentally kills his wife, but we're not there yet. So let's fast forward a little bit to when Burroughs goes to college and what happens after. Burroughs goes to Harvard. He graduates in 1938, I believe, and then immediately after he goes to New York City, just as young people do. He didn't really have much direction. Like I said, it's pretty useless failure at most things. And the guy just is a little mentally unstable. Perhaps that's obvious. But one interesting anecdote around the age of 25, this is in New York City, is that Burroughs cut off his finger just as an experiment, or I don't know what you'd call it, some kind of psychological skesis or something like that, some kind of testing of the self. It was basically a kind of Van Gogh moment, like when Van Gogh cut his ear. Pretty strange, but just wanted to mention that. It was just like the, I think from the top knuckle of one of his fingers, sliced it right off and, and was missing a part of his finger his entire life. Anyway, he was drafted into the war, the Great War, and but he was quickly discharged for mental instability. Again, total useless failure at all things, essentially. And the other big recurring feature of his everyday life, which you'll see throughout his life and which starts 
in New York City after he graduates from Harvard is that he was basically a self-hating homosexual who at every time in his life had some kind of romantic pursuit, some kind of object of affection who it never really works out with. He basically spends his entire life in every place he travels to. There's some man that he loves or is deeply attracted to and tries to build a relationship with him and it just fails. We get the impression from the biography that Burroughs really struggled with intimacy. He was very awkward, not very good at expressing his emotions and seems to have had some bad habits when it comes to being perhaps overly clingy and jealous and annoying in certain ways. And it's tragic because he was constantly heartbroken about this. Anyway, this literally is the same story everywhere he goes. So each time I'm not going to even mention it anymore. Just wanted to throw that out there because it's a major part of his story. Anyway, one of the most important things that happens in William Burroughs' life is that he meets Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac in New York City around 1944. They meet through a mutual friend named Lucien Carr. And you have to keep in mind, they were all nobodies, complete nobodies, right? Just artsy, free-spirited young adults in the bohemian circles of New York City, not famous at all. Neither of them, None of them had accomplished anything. In fact, Ginsburg was only 17 at the time. He was a student at Columbia. And even though Burroughs had not accomplished anything, he was just a natural leader because he was a bit older. He was very educated. Burroughs was very erudite. He always was. He was known for citing Shakespeare and reciting Shakespeare from memory in different contexts. So he was educated, very strange, interesting, and older. He was 30 years old at that time. So he was a great inspiration to Ginsburg. And they became fast friends, Kerouac as well. And they had this little bohemian set, which was really, sounds really awesome and fun and interesting. Like they were just really creative, had a lot of fun, just hanging out, laughing, drinking, smoking pot, and being creative. They would do all kinds of improv comedy and put on little plays in their little shoebox rat infested apartments. And it's really a, a beautiful picture that one gets from the book in this part of his life. I want to read to you a little excerpt from this time in his life. This is a little dialogue that Burroughs and Ginsburg had. And this is how William Burroughs appeared to Ginsburg. This is really useful to build your mental picture of Burroughs personality and his charm and his intellectual and creative spirit. I'll read you a bit from the biography. To the 17-year-old college freshman, Burroughs seemed to be a fount of wisdom. Allen asked Burroughs what he thought art was. Burroughs replies, quote, art is a three-letter word, end quote. Here he's trotting out Korzybski. Didn't they know anything about general semantics? Didn't they know that a word was not the thing it represented, thought Burroughs? To Allen, he seemed to be cutting through the intellectual miasma so widespread at Columbia, the sophomoric attachment to concepts, as if they had some ultimate meaning. Burroughs, Allen thought, was remarkable. Here was this distinguished Harvard man and member of the university club, always correctly dressed in a three-piece suit and snap-brim hat, who had theories on everything and rattled off page after page of Shakespeare. Allen began to jot down things he said, such as, quote, I like disreputable characters. They amuse me, end quote. He noted that when Burroughs said, I am glad to see you, he always looked away and that he washed his hands after receiving visitors. So again, here you see his conservatism. This is a guy who will shoot up heroin with some street urchins. But when you meet him for the first time, 
he washes his hand right after he shakes yours as if you're infected with something. But also, Ginsburg is going to be huge for Burroughs, probably the most important person in Burroughs' life, I would argue, in terms of Burroughs' ultimate success. Ginsburg was a natural wheeler and dealer. He was very extroverted. He was a hustler. And also, it turns out, he was a very powerful mind and, and voice at just the right time in just the right place. So it's actually Ginsburg who blows up first in this friend group with this poem, Howl. You probably heard of it. It's a very famous poem. It's worth reading. It's pretty interesting and exciting. You can make your critiques of Ginsburg for sure. He, I think, had a very hippie-like kind of dissolute ethics of enthusiastic destruction and all of that. But I think it's quite interesting. I, th I think he's cool. It's worth reading. Anyway, Hal and Kerouac's On the Road both make a big splash very close in time. This is before Burroughs publishes anything interesting. And they really break open the door for Burroughs. And then it's Ginsburg in particular who goes to work to get Burroughs his acclaim. In many ways throughout the rest of this story, Ginsburg is going to play an absolutely essential role. And this is going to, I think, teach us one of the first big lessons of Burroughs' life, which is that being a member of a small, private, social friend group that is authentically and enthusiastically motivated by a search for the truth, a search for a certain artistic ideal where you are actively and genuinely cultivating your intelligence and your creativity for fun privately with each other, just gassing each other up with no concern for accolades and money and all of that, but you're just balancing your spirits off of each other purely for fun. That I think is one of the most essential factors in the success of many writers. You see this in many writer biographies, but I think Burroughs is a very clear example of it. Without his social experience with Ginsburg in New York City, his life as a writer almost certainly would never have come together. It's that simple. Because as we're going to see, even the construction of his novels, the, the manual work of putting together the manuscript, Ginsburg helps him with that. Ginsburg will fly to Tangier just to physically help Ginsburg complete his manuscript, arranging the notes and all of that. Okay. Absolutely essential. And this is one of the biggest lessons of his life, in my opinion. If you only remember one thing from this podcast, this might be it. The critical importance of small, authentic, private friend groups of genuine, intense, generous, mutual respect, admiration, and support. By the way, I wrote about greater length, a little essay on the Other Life newsletter. It's called Disconnected. It's a little case study about the beats and how this worked with them. And it really just makes sense if you think about it, because if you're hamming each other up, gassing each other up, and you're really just doing it for fun, you're really just expressing yourself, trying to impress each other in that fun, easygoing, private, social way, how could that not spiral upward into something notable? You know what I mean? It's going to be weird. It's going to have all the unique quirks of the particular individuals who happen to be doing it. And by gassing each other up and doing that over time, you're actually practicing. You're refining your ideas. You're refining your speech. You're refining how you express yourself. And you're getting better and better at that. You're really honing your skills and your perspective. And if you do that in private, just for the sheer fun of it, it's almost guaranteed to be unique and 
different than what's out there in the marketplace and you're going to get good at it as well. And so at a certain point in time, it's almost inevitable that hits a critical mass and gains notice that other people outside of the group start to realize, whoa, this little group is up to something. How could it not? How could that not happen at a certain point if you're really gassing each other up and doing this in a in an authentic and dynamic way? So that's the theory. And I think you see that very clearly in the case of the Beats, but especially Ginsburg and Burroughs. Kerouac is a close friend. Kerouac will also travel down to Texas to visit Burroughs and he'll travel out to Tangier, but he's a bit more of a loner. He eventually just starts, he goes back to live with his mom in New England, becomes a drunk, and he has his own kind of interesting story. The relationship with Ginsburg, however, was really Burroughs' lifeline. His connection to the mainstream, not mainstream, but more like just the practical world of people actually getting things done. Ginsburg is basically his literary agent in the early days, just because he admired Burroughs and liked him and because they were friends. It's during these bohemian days in New York City that Burroughs meets Joan Vollmer. Joan Vollmer was a woman in the scene who often had parties at her apartment. She never gets into heroin, but she does get into pills. Specifically, her thing was Benzedrine. That's what they called it back then. It's basically just amphetamines. And they're both kind of degenerate druggies, but they really develop a, a loving relationship with each other. Burroughs was a misogynist, but he always wanted to be normal. He was always ashamed of his homosexuality and his homosexual relationships never really worked anyway. So he and Joan made a go at it. And by all indications, they had a pretty loving relationship. He was very kind to her. She was kind to him. They had sex, but it seems like it was not that good or not that often. And they just help each other. They're supportive of each other. And they basically decide to stick with each other. They have a common law marriage. And it's solidified by the fact that Joan gets pregnant. They conceive a child in New York City and they decide they're going to keep it. In fact, when she found out she was pregnant, she said to Burroughs, she said, how do you feel? Do you want to, do you want to keep it? And Burroughs said yes, because he's against abortion. He said, of course, we're going to keep it. Abortion is a form of murder, is what he said to her which I found very fascinating. It's, it's not the attitude or spirit that many people would assume Burroughs to have around these matters. I think imagine him, before I read this biography, I imagined him a social liberal, right? He does drugs, kind of a uh, precursor to the hippies and clearly had a wild and in many ways dissolute life. But again, he has this strange and fairly deep, consistent, conservative strain to his entire philosophy. And they have the baby. And then what happens is, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. They conceive in New York City, but what happens is, remember what I said that Burroughs gets into trouble literally everywhere he goes? He gets popped for forging some prescriptions in New York City. So they basically decide to hit the road, which is a pattern you'll see many times in the next several years. So she's pregnant, he gets in legal trouble, and they hit the road. And where do they decide to go? But Texas. Texas in the history of the United States is always the place where people go when they get into trouble with the law or whenever people feel like they've they've maxed out their potential in normal mainstream coastal America. Texas is always the next stop. It's fascinating. You see this with many people. I recently read a biography of Sam Houston and this guy was the governor of Tennessee. Okay. And he got canceled <laughs> straight up. It got canceled by 
false accusations of bad behavior from his wife at the time. Can you believe it? And his reputation is ruined. He has to leave the governorship. And where does he go but Texas? And of course, builds a incredibly imp impressive career for himself. But anyway, you see this throughout American history. And Burroughs is no exception. And so Burroughs and Joan and their two kids, Joan had one child from a previous marriage. And then the kid they have together named Billy hit the road. And they are together from about 1946 to 1953. The reason that they moved to Texas was that Burroughs had this absolutely ridiculous idea that he would become a commercial marijuana farmer. And so he bought a house and farm in New, Waver New Waverly, Texas. That's in East Texas. And keep in mind, it's not like growing pot was legal there. It's just that Texas had this reputation for being relatively lawless and libertarian, and you could just get away with stuff there. Mind you, he's never run a business. He's never really done anything practical in his entire life that was in any way successful. But nonetheless, they they moved to Texas. They do the thing. They're doing it. He's drinking and doing heroin the whole time. She's on amphetamines the whole time, but they have cats. And by all indications in the biography, it's actually a fairly idyllic period of his life. It's hot and quiet and a relatively slow, happy life that they have for some time. And he is writing a little bit, mind you, but just bits and pieces. Just It's like warm-up stuff. It's not really going anywhere. He's not super disciplined about it. And it's probably not that good. And of course, the business operation is a total comedy of errors. He was completely clueless and it failed pretty quickly. He had all of these aspirations of making a ton of money and it turned out to just be totally detached from reality. And in retrospect, it just never had a chance. And like I said, they get into legal trouble everywhere they go. At some point, he gets arrested. This time, what he got popped for was drunk driving and public indecency. He was actually driving with Joan one night, drunk, going fast, and then they pulled over to the side of the road to have sex, and someone called the sheriff on him. Business was failing, and they had to call it quits anyway. They decided to just flee to New Orleans, and then from New Orleans, they would flee there from another charge they would obtain in New Orleans, and they would go to Mexico. But at this point, I want to pause on what I think is the next big lesson that I've personally taken from Burroughs' life thus far. And by the way, you're probably wondering, how did he get the money for this house and this farm? And he basically went in on it with a friend of his from college who had some money. The next big lesson that I took in this part of Burroughs' life is the following. It's that kids are never an excuse for not taking risks and adventuring and living freely. It's so completely insane how Burroughs lived with a wife and two kids for about seven years and pretty happily, even though they were in the middle of East Texas on a completely idiotic business venture, both of them doing drugs all of the time. And what? Everything was pretty much fine. They both remembered it as a pretty happy time. And the kids were generally fine. You get the impression from the biography that they enjoyed the adventure and they always had friends coming through. They had friends come down to visit. I think they made some friends with local people, just like weird, random Texas people. And the kids entertained themselves and had their little activities. It was a big property. So presumably they 
had a lot of room to roam around. And look, my point here is not, I am not saying that he was in any way a role model, father or husband. He absolutely was not, not at all. And it gets even worse. But my point is that I love learning about examples of extremely bad, irresponsible, even perhaps stupid parenting, where when you look at it, you also have to admit nothing really bad happens. And the kids were fine and maybe even enjoyed it because I just find that is just such a relaxing and inspiring thing to reflect on. Because I will tell you, I am always so scared to make any significant life changes or to do anything risky or adventurous now that we have a kid. We just have one kid, our first kid, and he's almost two now. And so to read about someone like Burroughs who has two kids and just doing the most idiotic things you could imagine insanely risky, almost absurdly weird and dangerous and irresponsible stuff. And the kids are fine and life goes on. I find this to be a useful lesson because what it means is that I or you, assuming you're anywhere near average, you or I could be probably 10 times worse than we currently are as parents, if you're a parent, and still not be anywhere near how bad Burroughs was. And I find that very instructive especially for my own life as a writer and as a creative, it's so hard to give yourself the space and the, the leniency to take risks, go on adventures, and try weird idiosyncratic life experimentation to optimize for your own visions, for your own interests and your own passions and inspirations. And maybe it is a harebrained scheme and maybe it is going to fail and maybe you have some bad habits or vices, but maybe you need those things just they're, they're your things, not to justify them, but maybe you have some things like that where you just need them to feel happy or creative or whatever, and maybe they're not the best for the kids. But stories like Burroughs really prove that such things are also just not that bad for the kids either. It reminds me of Brian Kaplan's book, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids. I really like this book, by the way. If you have some kids, but you're on the fence about having more, or you don't have any kids yet, but you're thinking about whether you want to have kids. It's a really good book. It's a really important book because it really shows that he goes through all the evidence and he basically says that parenting really doesn't matter. There's very little that you can do to really move the needle for good or for ill in terms of your kid's ultimate life outcomes. It's almost all genetic. There are little things here and there that do make some difference, but they're actually pretty basic like nutrition. And I don't mean some fancy healthy diet. Make sure your kid is not physically starving things like that. Those things do matter. They do have effects, but it's a relatively short list of pretty simple things that you need to give your kid and pretty much nothing else matters. Now, to be fair, their boy son, Billy, does not turn out well, has a very tragic end. We'll talk about that later. But the girl basically turns out fine, as far as I'm aware, as far as I know. But anyway, the point is just that in this period, which is quite a long time, where there's a lot of moving from New York, from Texas, to Louisiana, to Mexico, and drugs in the house, and dubious characters coming in and out, and wasting time and money on a totally absurd business operation. The kids seem perfectly fine. And this really stuck with me for the reasons I've described. So the point is, if you have some crazy idea about moving to a new place or trying a new line of work, or I don't know, whatever your things might be, I'm almost certain that they're nowhere near as bad as this. And even if things go wrong, the kids themselves are not a reason that you can't 
do what you need to do to pursue your life adventurously and freely. That's the point here. Another thing that I really like about Burroughs, and perhaps this is the third most important lesson that I've taken from a study of his life, is that he never tried to impress anyone, and he never had any shame about the way that he chose to live. He's so messed up. He's a total failure in pretty much every way for almost all of his adult life. From the outside, to anyone who would be meeting him for the first time or walking into his home or anything like that, for the entire first part of his life until before he's famous, which happens much later, he basically would have come off as how we might see today, like a homeless person, essentially. But he never cared. He never minded this. He was never insecure. He was never self-conscious. He did not care how he was perceived or, or what people thought of him. He just seemed to genuinely not care whatsoever. And I think that this is one of the keys to understanding how and why he was able to not just have a unique perspective, but to sustain and to deepen and cultivate an incredibly unique perspective on the world. And the reason I relate to this so much is that I'm naturally not really like this. I like to think I'm my own person and I don't care what people think. And maybe statistically, I am relatively compared to most people, but I'm the first to admit that I have insecurities for sure. I constantly find myself lapsing into self-consciousness and anxiety about how I'm perceived or if I feel slighted by someone who sticks their nose up at me or whatever. That These things can sometimes trigger me pretty bad. I'm the first to admit that. Burroughs just seemed completely immune to this kind of self-consciousness. And I think you need to have or to build a strong immunity against this kind of self-consciousness in order to really go deep down your own weird rabbit hole through the course of your entire adult life as a thinker and a writer. So I want to give you just a funny little vignette that I think perfectly dramatizes Burroughs' wildness in this regard. So now we're going to fast forward a little bit to Mexico. I told you they go to Texas in 1946, and by 1949, they're in Mexico with a stopover in New Orleans. They basically get in trouble in Texas, go to New Orleans, get in trouble in New Orleans, and flee to Mexico. So one time, an old friend of Burroughs brought his well-to-do wife down to visit them in Mexico City. And this was a sophisticated, attractive woman. And when she got down there, she was so disgusted and horrified by the demeanor and the appearance of Burroughs and his wife, Joan, that she couldn't even remember what they talked about that night. Now, first, I'll give you some gory details that are just hilarious and really draw out what I'm talking about. But first, just think honestly, from your own perspective, what would you do if you were hosting a guest who came all the way from another country to spend a few days with you. I know my instinct would be to, I don't know, maybe clean the house, put on my best clothing. Like naturally, you want to project a certain impression. Uh, you want it to come off like you're succeeding in life and you're sophisticated as well. And right, this is just very natural. Even if you're in a relatively independent spirit, this is just a natural thing to do. Now let's compare that to how Burroughs and Joan hosted their close friend and his sophisticated, beautiful wife in their place in Mexico City. So the woman visiting, her name is Marianne Elvins, to be precise. She said that she would later report that Joan looked like 
a meaning mental patient let out for the afternoon. Those were her words. At one point, Joan drops her pocketbook and outspills a bunch of pills, pills of every color and shape. They just roll out all over the rook. And Joan goes down on her hands and knees and she's picking them up, just shoveling them back into her purse. She's smiling and murmuring like a madwoman. Burroughs, meanwhile, the guy looks like a cadaver. And he always had this kind of strange look, right? He's very tall and skinny and has a sullen face. He's got thin lips. Not the most attractive guy, for being honest. He's got yellow teeth. Marianne remembers him as having yellow fingers and zombie eyes. That's how she describes it. Needless to say, Joan and Burroughs are both on drugs at that time, as they almost always were. And later for dinner, Joan cooked a roast beef. But when she placed it on the table, it was basically raw. Then Burroughs steps up to serve it. He just cuts off huge random hunks of meat and just puts them on everyone's plates. So he had he didn't know how to carve uh, roast beef. And if you cut it in the wrong direction, it becomes very hard to cut. Looks bad. It's awkward on the plate. It's like rolling over when you try to cut it. So he's just this kind of barbarian dinner host. And then Marianne reports that he just, he starts eating his great slab of beef with his hands. He just two hands, picks it up and just eating it, gnawing at it rapaciously. And basically Marianne Elvins was like, get me out of here. She just found them to be such malignant creatures, like cursed scorpions. Now here's the interesting thing. It was not soon after this that Burroughs would start writing seriously. And his writing was largely encouraged by his good friend, Kells Elvins. And this is the man who's visiting him in this anecdote with his wife, Marianne. And they always stayed in touch. They stayed friends. And Kells was always just a supportive, encouraging friend who believed in Burroughs and was just generally supportive and encouraging. And this is very fascinating to me because what it shows which I think a lot of us forget, is that you can be incredibly repulsive and vulgar and unrefined and rude and ugly and gross, okay? And you can also still be intelligent and interesting and original enough that people still want to hang out with you and they still like you. Like, these are two different things. And this is a very important thing to be reminded of because it's very easy to forget. You often feel like, we often feel like we have to be some perfect basket of good traits. We have to be smart and nice and a good host and charismatic and charming and clean and wearing nice clothes and all these things. Like we, we often assume that you have to be all of these things to, for people to like you and to have smart, interesting, successful people desire to be around you and to believe in you and support you and want to work with you and stuff like that. And I guess in some domains that might be true depending on your line of work and what you do. But if you're a writer, if you're a thinker, if you're a creative, and that's really what you're all about, and that's really who you are and what you want to do and what you do, then the game of life is different. The social games are different. You don't have to worry so much about impressing people with your clothes and your house and your sophisticated etiquette. You don't. You can be an insane drugged out barbarian. But if you're interesting and you can recite Shakespeare authentically and you have original and illuminating and inspiring ideas, then you can get away with 
absolute inadequacy on all of those other generally desirable traits. And the reason this is really important is because you can suffocate yourself creatively if you are always really worried about performing on those other traits. You can suck the life out of yourself trying to be really good in certain dimensions. And in doing so, you're essentially snuffing out and suppressing and choking off the few dimensions that really matter the most to you in the life you want to live and the way you want to be. So I just find this very useful lesson because again, I think I suffer from this problem often. And I think the case study of Burroughs is just such a useful corrective. And keep in mind, even before Burroughs is mega famous, he would meet some of the most impressive and powerful people in the world, in the Western world. Quite soon, for instance, he'll be rubbing elbows with Peggy Guggenheim. He doesn't really care about rich or famous people. He never did. And he's quite easily bored by a lot of these people, but he will meet Duchamp and Celine and Francis Bacon, Norman Mailer, many others, famous writers and other famous people in general. And he never tried to impress any of them. He didn't really care. He was a man of few words. He was pretty quickly bored by people, even if they were famous, and he didn't pretend otherwise. But people wanted to meet him and people wanted to be around him generally. And I think just the final thing to draw from this is that in some ways, if you're so obsessed with living freely and being yourself and living a life of the mind, cultivating ideas and honest search for original perspective more than anything else, so much so that you let all of the other dimensions of your life suffer a little bit, so much so that you look a little strange or ugly or dirty or low status in all of these other dimensions that don't matter to you as much as the life of your mind. In a way, that itself, I think, is a signal to others that, oh, wow, this is the real deal. There's something very real going on with this person. And yeah, maybe they're full of hot air. This is not in any way a guarantee that they have something interesting or important to share with the world. But if they do have something important and original to share with the world, then their failure in these other dimensions is an amplifier of their authenticity. It's like a even stronger confirmation that this person must really know something powerful or be onto something powerful if they are so bold as to completely neglect these other socially desirable aspects of themselves. I think that's part of what's going on here with Burroughs. So now we have to talk about the infamous incident. It's pretty well known that William Burroughs killed his wife. And people have different theories about this. Some people think that it was purposeful. Some people think that it was so criminally negligent that he's more or less guilty of murder. Some people think it was a genuine accident and have different viewpoints on it. So I'll tell you my opinion based on my study of his life, but let me just break down what happened. In Mexico City, as I said, they're always on drugs and drunk and stuff like that. So they are in this case as well. And they're playing William Tell. If you've never heard of that before, the William Tell game is when you put something on someone's head and then you try to shoot it off. You've probably seen depictions of this like in the Wild West stories. And that's what they did. That's what Burroughs tried to do with a glass on the head of his wife, Joan. There were a few other people in the room. They were socializing, hanging out, a little party, I guess you could call it, just hanging out. And it's a terribly sad story, a terrible tragedy. 
which I'm not too concerned to go into in detail. I, I certainly don't want to litigate it and I don't want to spend too much time on it just because it's depressing and yeah, it's, a, it's just an awful situation. But what I will tell you is that in my reading of the story and my overall view of the biography, I do think that it was genuinely an honest accident. Basically the gun and its shooting direction were off a bit. He was inebri inebriated. He was not very far from her. I guess you could make the argument that although obviously irresponsible and an insane thing to do inside of a house, especially if you wanted to be very charitable, I guess you could say that he was close enough that one could imagine shooting the glass off of her head successfully and not hurting her. And he was just feeling crazy in a second, spontaneous, got a little carried away, goofing around, felt confident that he could do it, put the glass on her head, and then just messed up. And also the gun's directionality was a little bit off. And yeah, awful tragedy. And you can definitely make the case that this was an awful, unethical, and criminal kind of irresponsibility and negligence, for sure. I think on some level, it's obvious it was all of those things. But I have to say, personally, I don't walk away from this story feeling too aggressively or harshly judgmental and punitive towards Burroughs. He was wrong. Definitely. He's guilty of something, for sure. Very serious. And the whole thing is just awful. But I do believe that he loved her. And I do also believe that he was devastated immediately and for the rest of his life. It haunted him very much. Which is not to say, oh, poor Burroughs. Obviously, it's poor Jane who died. Poor Joan, I'm sorry, who died. I say this just to point out that I do not believe any of the theories that suggest he was in any way cold-blooded or murderous. I think that just doesn't fit with any of the other facts that we have about his life. So that's what happened, and that's how I read it. And the final thing I'll say is the reason I do not feel overly judgmental or punitive towards Burroughs is that this is the kind of life that they lived together. They met in the bohemian scene. They lived a wild and reckless life together. And I don't say this to justify his negligence and irresponsibility here, but I do think it's important context. In other words, she loved him and married him because he was a wild man in this strange way. And she uh, indulged his wild, irresponsible tendencies. She allowed him to be that. And he allowed her to be that in her own way. And that was the strange but sweet modus vivendi that they had together. That was what defined their love and life together. And so it's a horrible tragedy that it ended with a particularly unfortunate and grotesque and irresponsible error on Burroughs' part. But it's not like either of them signed up for a life of safe, predictable responsibility. So I'm not in any way victim blaming or saying she asked for this or anything like that. I just think that when people have a unique love that is based on extreme behaviors that they each romanticize and enjoy in their own wild ways, if one fateful day those tendencies go off the deep end and someone gets hurt very badly. You can't just judge that fateful accident with the same standards of judgment that you would use to judge if it happened within a typical suburban household.
That's my point. So that's the infamous in- incident, and that's all I'm going to say about that. But if you ever hear a Burroughs hater say that he murdered his wife or something like that, I do believe we can reject that interpretation flat out. So after this happens, once again, he goes on the run. He goes to Colombia first. They eventually work it out legally. He does go back to Mexico and he, he sorts it out, basically has to spend a lot of money on a lawyer. Mexico is pretty corrupt and informal legal system, basically finds a way to get the charges finessed a bit. He does some penance. I forget what it is exactly, but it's not that bad. And he basically gets out of it. So he'll spend time in Colombia and then he'll spend time in Tangier, Morocco, and then eventually he will go to Paris. So now it's time to start talking about his books. So his first book was called Junkie, and it was published from Tangier in 1953. And basically with the death of his wife, he was really gutted and it basically represented the turning point where he got serious about writing. I get the impression that he was just so helpless and had nothing else to do and was just such, he was so he felt so bad and felt so guilty. And oh, and by the way, the their one kid, Julie's daughter, I'm sorry, Joan's daughter, Julie, from a previous man, goes to live with Joan's parents and Burroughs' son, Billy, the child that he had with Joan, he goes to live with Burroughs' parents who are at this time living in Florida. Okay. And this is, we'll just get this out of the way right here. This is other than accidentally killing Joan, this is the other just absolutely awful aspect of Burroughs' personality and life. And sadly, you see this with many writers, but he was just a total failure of a father. He sends Billy to go live with his parents, Billy's grandparents, and pretty much has nothing to to do with his son for the rest of his son's life. That's not totally true as the son, Billy, gets older and becomes a young adult. He starts getting into trouble, not unlike Burroughs himself. And at that time, when he starts becoming a kind of troubled young adult, Burroughs does, he does try. He tries to reach out. He tries to follow up. He tries to support and see his son. And he tries to be attentive to Billy's difficulties as he starts to show them as a young adult. But it's a day late and a dollar short. He accidentally kills the boy's mother and then immediately ships him off to his parents. And he checks in, he visits here and there. And I think he sends a bit of money when he starts to make some, but he never makes that much. For all intents and purposes, he pretty much does abandon his son. But the son is safe with the grandparents. And I think he justified it in his own mind, thinking that they're going to do a better job than he would do. And he was safe and looked after and had everything he needed in a healthy, constructive environment, in a good neighborhood, good schools, all that. Whereas I think he had a realistic sense of himself as just a failure and totally impractical guy who is on drugs all the time and constantly having shady men sleeping over his apartment. And again, not excusing him, not justifying him, but I think this is probably what he told himself in shipping his son to the his grandparents. Okay. Nonetheless, this is when he starts getting serious about writing. So Junkie was a confessional novel and it provided a kind of honest look at 
this previously unexamined social group and the, the portrayal of drug addiction in those days was very out of bounds. It just was not seen as something that could be or should be the subject of a book just because it was seen as a total evil. So you could condemn it, but to actually show how it worked and talk about it in a way that was not condemning was you know, very provocative at that time. And it actually did pretty well. It did very well, actually. It wasn't like a mega hit, like a global sensation or anything, but it sold 113,000 copies within a year of publication. So quite successful. And as I alluded to before, Junkie only found a publisher thanks to Allen Ginsberg. It was pretty much all Ginsberg that made it happen. And it was not easy either. He had to really fight for it. He tried many different people, editors and publishers that he knew, because like I said, he was a real wheeler and dealer and he was in all those circles and he was ambitious and extroverted in, in, in those dimensions. But he had to really fight and make the case for Burroughs to many people. And then when he did secure a publisher, Ginsburg himself personally traveled to Tangier to help Burroughs organize all of the different fragments, the, the different pieces of paper that different notes were put on. He actually sat down with Burroughs for several days and helped him put it all together. So again, the relationship with Ginsburg and this idea of having a genuine, authentic, close, creative friend who uh, can support you and help you, a huge part of the, the story of Burroughs' success. Another little wrinkle here that I think is really cool that I find very inspiring is that these people didn't have any money. Ginsburg was starting to blow up, but seeing actual money from cultural notoriety, money only really comes much later. It's, and even still, it's not a ton of money for quite some time. And so Ginsburg going all the way to Tangier to help Burroughs finish this manuscript is really significant. It's, it's no small feat. He was only able to do it because $200 came in from the National Academy of Arts and Sciences, thanks to William Carlos Williams, who was able to get Ginsburg a little bit of money. And Ginsburg is immediately spending it to help boost his friend and keep the scene going. And maybe it was personally motivated by Ginsburg. There, there's a kind of rational self-interest there as well, because you want to see your scene get bigger. In a way, it, it redounds back to you if a few of your close friends are also making moves and making waves. But I think that's cool. And I think that's a mutually beneficial way to, to see this kind of thing. Okay, so that was Junkie. A little bit later, thanks to the success of Junkie, Burroughs has a little bit more interest from publishers and editors. And he will then publish what I think it's fair to say is the, the most important work of his entire career, the most well-known and significant and influential as legit avant-garde high art. And that's Naked Lunch. Because Junkie was an interesting book and it was pretty successful but it was really not yet Burroughs' characteristic avant-garde style and voice quite yet. That only fully arrives with Naked Lunch, and that was published in 1959, so about six years between those two books. And Naked Lunch was censored very seriously. It actually caused a very big scene. This was at the same time that Henry Miller's Tropic of Cancer was also being censored. And so there's a reason that Henry Miller and Burroughs both did a lot of their writing from Paris because Paris did have relatively liberal censorship laws and there was a culture of radical publishing there. But when those books, Tropic of Cancer and Naked Lunch, made their way to America and there was some demand for these texts there, well, America has just always been a little bit more of a 
puritanical culture than France. And this is actually a really important point in the history of of publishing and, and the First Amendment politics in the U.S. And so here's what happened. Naked Lunch was ruled obscene and therefore censored in the United States when publishers first brought it there. But Burroughs' publisher made an appeal, and that appeal went to the Massachusetts Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court. And they delayed their decision to wait and see what happened to the other obscenity cases that were being reviewed by the higher court, the U.S. Supreme Court, including Henry Miller's case for Tropic of Cancer. And so Henry Miller's case went to the U.S. Supreme Court, the highest court of the land, of course, and Tropic of Cancer won in the Supreme Court. It won its case and it was allowed to be published based on some specific reasoning. And this specific reasoning would later be known as the Brennan Doctrine. It was named after Justice William Brennan. And the Brennan Doctrine stated that a work declared obscene could only be excluded from constitutional protection under the First Amendment if it was deemed, quote, utterly without redeeming social importance, end quote. And so the question for Burroughs became, the question for whether or not Naked Lunch could be published became, was it real art or not? Did it have redeeming social importance by being a genuine work of art? That was the idea of the Brennan Doctrine. If it was just sheer smut, then it could be censored and publication could be could be blocked. But if it had redeeming social importance, then it could not be censored and it was protected under the First Amendment. And when the appeal trial came in the Massachusetts Supreme Court, it was a big affair. It was a big news story. And several famous writers were brought into court to testify to the artistic merit of Naked Lunch. And when you think about it, it was actually incredibly good PR. To be an infamous banned book, it's so provocative, but then also for the court to really have to answer the question of whether or not it's real art, whether or not it has redeeming social importance, what an excellent promotional situation. And of course, Burroughs Publisher won the appeal. The court decided Naked Lunch was genuine art that had redeeming social importance, and Naked Lunch quickly became a classic of the American literary avant-garde of the 20th century. And so perhaps it's worth pausing here for a moment to note yet another lesson, which is that I think real transgression, genuine transgression, I don't mean LARPing for the sake of buzz and notoriety, which usually falls pretty flat and maybe it works very briefly, but it never that never really works to not sustainable. It doesn't really build a meaningful career or make a lasting impact just from optimizing for transgression per se. But if you are doing something original and unique and it does have a transgressive element and you are breaking some sort of real fundamental legal and social norm that it really badly upsets key parties, generally, I think that's going to be good for your writing career. That's one lesson from the life of Burroughs, at least. And I think you can find many other examples of a similar thing going on, sometimes known as the Streisand effect, or it's not the same thing, but it's a similar thing that if you can force a system or a culture to try to suppress you, it often has the counterintuitive effect of promoting you. And I think you see this with Naked Lunch. And the rest is history, really. There are some interesting anecdotes which we could go into, but I think we've generally covered the most important points or principles that I've personally 
learned from studying the life of Burroughs, but I can maybe leave you with just a few more facts and observations to close this out. One thing is that Burroughs never, ever had very much money. He was successful enough that he was able to no longer require an allowance from his parents. And he definitely exited poverty. He was also able to hire a personal assistant because he was so bad at pretty much everything practical. But after basic expenses and simply renting a decent place wherever he was living at the time, he never really had that much left over. And he was working well into his 70s to pay the bills. One interesting fact is that after he becomes famous, he learns that he can do readings for money. And this is something with so many writers and thinkers. Emerson made a lot of his income by essentially doing the lecture circuit, doing public lectures for money. Mark Twain did public lectures for money at different times and places. This is more or less common or popular, but Thomas Carlyle did lectures for money. Many such examples. I just think that's an interesting point because obviously if you know about my history, I was a professor and I left all that. And now one of the things I do is I, you know, give talks and seminars and host different things for admission fees. And it's just fascinating how perennial this is as a method that makes reading and thinking and writing and speaking a, a viable model. And so he did that a lot just for money. And another fi fun fact about Burroughs is that he eventually moves to Lawrence, Kansas, and he's very celebrated there. If you go to East Texas and you try to ask people up about Burroughs, they either have no idea what you're talking about, or if they do, they hate him. He's not really, he's been disowned by Texas, I think, as far as I know, if people know him at all. But if you go to Lawrence, Kansas, he's a celebrity. And apparently, I know from my friend who lives there that you can still find some old guys who knew him, or there's lots of legends. Anyway, the story behind that, the reason why he ends up in Lawrence is because his assistant, James, who was a good friend to him and incredibly supportive and incredibly important to his success as well, is from Lawrence. And and when James decides to move back to Lawrence, Burrow says, oh, you know what? Fine, I'll do that too. Maybe it'll be good for me. And he quite enjoys his quiet life in Lawrence, Kansas in the tail end of his life. He also wanted to save money and have some more space and be able to buy a house, I think. So yeah, that's interesting. But like I said, the rest is history. These were the most striking facts and principles that I learned reading this book, namely that Burroughs was a conservative anarchist who had extremely wild ideas and expressed himself in a very wild and bizarre way, but nonetheless maintained a very prim and proper conservative attitude towards most everyday questions of politics and society. So maybe here... The lesson is very similar to that famous Flaubert quote. Flaubert said somewhere that he lives a very simple, organized, and innocuous everyday life so that he could reserve all of his creative violence for his work. Obviously, that's not exactly what Burroughs represents, but in his own strange way, Burroughs seemed to practice some version of this in the way that he always maintained conservative politics and conservative dress in order that he may live a more violently creative life, indeed an all too violent, a tragically violent life. We learned that you need to have a good private friend circle of passionate, genuine, intelligent, creative spirits who you really like and who genuinely like you. And you need to ham each other up and gas each other up until 
you hit a critical mass and it starts boiling over into society at large. We've learned that kids are no excuse, that if you're not living how you need to live or you're not living adventurously enough or you're not being creative enough or you're not writing enough or what have you, whatever the case might be, maybe you have other excuses, but kids should not be the excuse. Kids are not ever the excuse for such things. And Burroughs' life is proof of that. At least those first few years of his son Billy's life. We've learned that you should not try to impress. You should never worry about impressing anyone. And you should not be ashamed of how you choose to live. In fact, if you are optimizing so hard for your own creative originality that other dimensions of your life suffer and look bad and are ugly and low quality, whatever, who cares? Own it. Flaunt it even. Let those other dimensions sag down to absurd and grotesque levels. Who cares? If you really have something important to say, you really have a creative project that you're really genuinely working on and you're committed to following through on, then you should just trust that your work in the long run will explain why you were embarrassing and inadequate in the other dimensions. Now, I'm not saying you should use your personal creative project and your your creative calling as a justification or an excuse for just being awful and negligent in all of the other aspects of life that matter. I'm not saying that. But when it comes to just the superficial dimensions, you know, how you look or how you dress or whatever, those types of things that people can be very self-conscious and insecure about, in those dimensions, just maybe don't beat yourself up. Don't worry so much about that. Don't obsess over those superficial things. If you do indeed have an original, interesting, long-running creative project of some kind, that is sometimes just the trade-off that is necessary. And if you really believe in your work, then you should be comfortable with that trade-off and you should just let it be, own it. Don't apologize. Don't feel bad. Burroughs was a really compelling and inspiring example of what that looks like because it's not even very visible. It's very subtle. He's not ever bragging about how little he cares or showing off how immune he is to the judgments of others. No, if you're doing that kind of thing, it just shows that, in fact, you are not immune. In fact, you are obsessed with how people think about you. So you have to show yourself off as not caring about what people think. And you get what I'm saying? If you actually don't care deeply in the way that Burroughs didn't care, if you were truly immune to those types of judgments like Burroughs was, you just never talk about it at all. You just seem like a crazy person. You seem like an ugly, barbaric, absurd failure in many dimensions of life except for the few that really matter the most. All right, everybody, thank you for listening. If you made it this far, this was a long podcast. So if you made it this far, you must have found it edifying in some way. Thank you so much for your interest, as always. I'd love to hear from you, like I said at the beginning. You know, maybe let me know what other biographies I should study or what was good about this, or especially what was bad about this, if there was any parts of this that you thought were dumb or verbose or whatever. It's a new format, so all feedback welcome. Thanks for listening. I appreciate you more than I can explain. Talk to you later.